Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Resuming Debate. I'm your host, Garnet Jenis, Member of Parliament. Uh, and we have this weekly podcast platform. It's been it's been great. We've been doing weekly uh, episodes uh, since the beginning of this year and covering so many interesting topics on uh, contemporary Canadian politics, international affairs, history, and the connections between those those various areas. And uh, one topic that uh, those who have followed my work know is is very close to my heart and something I've worked a lot on is the situation in Hong Kong. Uh, which I see really as, as kind of a, a, a critical pivot point in this uh, in this contest uh, between uh, between the values of the Chinese Communist Party and their effort to expand their influence, and between the idea of, of freedom and democracy and rule of law. Um, just as uh, just as as Ukraine is kind of a critical pivot point in in uh, that tension between uh, the Russian regime and the West. Uh, Hong Kong is a is a, a critical pivot point between the CCP and uh, those who are promoting freedom and democracy. So uh, we're, we're going to be discussing the issue of Hong Kong today with a particular look, though, at, at some of the aspects of how Hong Kong's system functions, issues of judicial independence. And uh, many of you may not know this, but there continues to be a, a prominent Canadian judge, Beverly McLaughlin, who sits as part of Hong Kong's judiciary. And that is becoming increasingly controversial in light of uh, in light of really the the decline in the ability of of Hong Kong to function as as a as a free and independent enclave. Uh, well, well, let's say as a free enclave uh, within within China. So to discuss these issues around Beverly McLaughlin's presence on on the Hong Kong court, uh, issues of uh, of developments in Hong Kong in general, but particularly with respect to law in Hong Kong. I'm very pleased to be joined by Chi Kun Sun, who's a lawyer and mediator in Toronto, and Ryan Alford, uh, who's a, an associate professor at the Bora Alaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University. Uh, both have uh, a lot of interest in this area, so thank you both for being part of this conversation. Thank, thank you, you for inviting me. Um, so Chikin, why don't you go first for, for, for those who are a bit newer to this topic, but just maybe who have followed it in the past, but have not been following it as much in the last few months with some other developments going on around the world. Uh, what is the latest in terms of the situation in Hong Kong? What should people be aware of? And uh, what are the things in particular that are being worked through kind of, kind of in, let's say, March and April and, and early May here of uh, 2022? Um, the situation in Hong Kong continues to be very concerning there's really nothing that is all that surprising ever since the communist Chinese imposed the national security law in Hong Kong. Now, um, in what the Hong Kong people call a small circle election, small circle in Chinese is a derogatory term. It means uh, exclusive. Um, so in the small circle election, they are going to have uh, elect quote unquote new executive, John Lee. He was an assistant to the chief executive, Carrie Lam, and he is running with no opposition. She is retiring. And if you read between the lines, that means things are going to get worse because if he's not worse than Carrie Lam, Beijing would not have picked him. They would have simply kept Carrie Lam. And he's already come out to say a lot of things 
as if um, he thinks that we don't know he is going to be completely insensitive to fundamental freedom. So all is to say that things are not good. And as a Canadian, I always felt that we have so much enthusiasm for talking about human rights. And so I look at us, have we done enough to match that rhetoric? And Justice McLaughlin's position in the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal at this point, given the um, complete lack of judiciary independence, um, it's really something that's very troubling because we continue to talk a great talk, but I feel like there are not enough of us who stand up to say, well, let us do what we can stop telling other people what to do. So um, I'm hoping that Justice McLaughlin will keep considering what more and more of us are saying to her to use the, her uh, position, the respect that so many people have for her to take a stand, to stand for something against the current climate in Hong Kong of wiping out fundamental rights that is there's no justice system anymore. It's just, um, it's become part of the machine for the brutal regime of Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank, thank you for those those kind of up to the, the most recent events update. Let's, let's go back though a, a little bit as well to kind of just set the structural stage because you're referring to some aspects of the structure of the Hong Kong system. And let me offer kind of an explanation for, for our listeners and you know, correct me if I get any of this wrong, but basically Hong Kong is, has one of those systems where there are elections, there are um, processes, kind of the, the, the facial independence of institutions, but, but the setup is such that those, those institutions are, are, uh, are not likely to have the meaningful will of the people expressed through them because the elections to the LegCo, Hong Kong's legislative body, are, um, are dominated by what are called functional constituencies where a small number of, of entrenched business interests get to select their chosen candidate. So it's not a, a people vote. And uh, there are some, some constituencies that are open to uh, to a large number of voters, but it's it's not a kind of uh, equal equal citizenship democracy. The system is structured and skewed to be able to be uh, much more subject to manipulation. And then it is that legislative body that elects the chief executive. And so the um, th these mechanisms create opportunities for interference uh, and and uh, the circumvention of that process. Um, but even with that process, the government of China had tried to get uh, various uh, laws passed to weaken Hong Kong's uh, independence and rule of law. They faced a significant backlash, and so they ended up essentially imposing the national security law from Beijing, which was a which was a further violation of of any kind of independence for Hong Kong. This is a violation of the commitment that was made when Hong Kong. Join, rejoin China, which was a commitment that it would it would be able to retain its its uh, high degree of autonomy in its existing system, um, and so prior to the national security law, there were a number of these foreign judges that sat on Hong Kong's court of final appeal as as a sort of bulwark to try to protect the uh, the independence of Hong Kong's judiciary. And so now the question is, given all the all the things that have happened, given how all these, the, the, to whatever extent there was this independence of these institutions before, 
they've been weakened. And so now it's, it's an open question. What's the point of foreign judges remaining on these bodies? Are they lending legitimacy to a broken process or are they, or are they making things a little better than they would otherwise be? So maybe we'll go to you, Ryan, tell us if I, if my summary was okay there and, and also what your, what your kind of reflections are on, on this whole issue of the court of final appeal and the role that it plays. Well, no, your description is, is quite accurate. We can look at even before the handover of sovereignty of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region to see that certain guarantees were made uh, as part of what was called the Sino-British Declaration of 1984. One was that the chief executive of Hong Kong would be elected in a process that was broadly compatible with universal suffrage. So this notion that it would eventually be this small circle exclusive franchise uh, is out of keeping with those basic commitments that led to the handover. Um, and also the promulgation of the national security law by Beijing is contrary to those uh, commitments. And this is what allows us to conclude that judges will not be playing a meaningful role in the determination of the basic constitutional structure of Hong Kong and, and to keep its rule of law alive. Because the most important feature of the national security law uh, from the judicial perspective is the idea that this person, the chief executive of Hong Kong, soon to be John Lee, a former hatchet man for Carrie Lam, um, is to select the judges who are deemed politically reliable enough to sit in judgment of people charged with state crimes under the national security law. Now, this is what perplexes me about Beverly McLaughlin's position here, because she was very clear when she was Chief Justice of Canada that she would not brook any political interference with the rule of the judiciary in constitutional review. Now, when, where the chief executive chooses the pool of judges who are deemed politically reliable enough to sit in these cases, she's content to tolerate that, because what that's going to mean is that anyone who would reject the basic premises of this deconstruction of the rule of law and the dissolution of civil society that it entails is screened out. So if you really were going to be someone who was going to play that role in keeping the rule of law alive through vigorous judicial review, you're not going to be allowed to play that role. So it's really perplexing what she thinks she can do, given the fact that anybody who would like to play that role is never going to be allowed to play that role. Okay, same with you, Ryan, like just for, for my and everybody else's understanding here. So you have the court of final appeal, which sort of functions like the Supreme Court. Cases are appealed to that. But what you're saying is that uniquely for national security law related offenses, those won't actually go to the equivalent of the Supreme Court. They'll be tried separately by a select panel of judges that are identified well, for that purpose. I mean, functionally, yes. I mean, functionally, it's a separate court because rather than the judges, I mean, technically it's going to the court of final appeal, but if the judges on the panels are selected via a special process controlled by the chief executive, it really is as if you have a separate court of final appeal comprised of, of judges who are executive branch loyalists, people who are who are reliable, who are directly loyal to the chief executive and ultimately to Beijing. Okay, so that that the Canadian equivalent of that would be that if a you know if a case goes to the Supreme Court, we've got nine judges, three judges are going to hear the case, and the Prime Minister is going to select which three judges are going to hear the case. So he's going to choose three judges that are more likely to think in line with uh, with him. Um, well, there's a little that, wrinkle there that I have to introduce yeah. because okay. Beverly McLaughlin is hidden behind this distinction. 
uh, and I use that term advisedly. So the chief executive doesn't pick the three judges. What they do is they say, the chief judge can pick the judges, but from this list that I've designated. I so it's more like the prime minister chooses six judges. Oh, the Supreme Court of Canada says not those three, no, not uh, Justice Abella. We don't like her. Right. Uh, so there's six, and then the chief judge can choose from that six. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting to just observe the manipulation of the system by the Chinese Communist Party in, in Hong Kong because it's uh, it's done. Um, it's done with. Uh, I mean, I think people see through it, right? But there's there's a level of sort of layered complexity to, to the way this is done, right? It's the same with the, the way the, the LegCo works, right? It's, it's not, the, the government of China isn't appointing the LegCo, but they are able to structure it so that undemocratically uh, particular interests are shaping it. And, and then you have this, this skew. Um, and so, so is it fair to say the same kind of thing is happening in the judiciary? Yeah, Ryan, go ahead and then we'll go to I'll just jump that. in on the subject of LegCo. So people are being prosecuted under the national security law for attempting to organize political parties so right. that the people of Hong Kong can express their will in the LegCo elections. So just in particular, I would point to the prosecution ongoing right now of Carol Ng, the former chair of the Confederation of Trade Unions of Hong Kong. So for, me, for merely trying to make those elections meaningful, people are effectively being charged with sedition. Yeah. Well, and uh, the fact that John Lee is running unopposed in the small circle election is another, you know, example of how Beijing does it. They don't come out to designate him or nominate him. They don't have to. People know from the fact that he would step forward to um, get nominated. That means Beijing would have given him their blessing. And therefore, nobody even dare to run against them. When the chief executive position first got started, although Hong Kong people were dissatisfied that only a few thousand of these elites elected from the, these functional constituencies, you talked about that they're the only ones who could vote, but there was still a more lively exchange of ideas. I know because I do know some people who served on that committee, but um, this round, there's he, he's running unopposed. And that's how Beijing like it. They don't want to hear from the people. And really, the more you see how they treat people and their fundamental rights in Hong Kong and worse in China under the, uh, the banner of uh, zero COVID, that they, their values are so antithetical to ours. And it is really, really hard to watch. Um, I sometimes wonder, have we spent enough time to think about the fact that most of us use something that's made in China? We can't help it. These days, it will be very hard to try to live a life without spending any money that goes to China. But I think that it actually um, provokes questions that we have to ask ourselves the, um, in a way we can say that although we're not all like Justice McLaughlin um, sitting to ornament the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal while it um, becomes a, uh, an instrument of a brutal regime, but do we all have roles to play and what can we do? I really would love to see Canadians reflect more 
on what we can do and get away from lecturing other people on how they should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I think, I think those are important points and I want to, I want to return to them. Um, let's talk just next about what happened with the British judges. So there were a number of, a number of international judges recently, the British, uh, British judges stepped off. And uh, in a report of the Special Committee on Canada-China Relations, we had recommended uh, um, a look at this whole issue of the presence of Canadian judges on Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal. But the issue was really brought back into discussion as a result of the, um, the British judges' decision. So does one of you want to weigh in on, on what the politics in the UK was around this, how that came about, and, and the implications? I guess I'll get the ball rolling if that's okay. Um, yeah. Sure. It, right. it was quite a remarkable statement. Um, it, it was clear in that statement issued by Lord Reed that they had really seen the degeneration of the civil society of Hong Kong as a, a function of the application of the national security law. That there had been this awareness that the national security law is the death of the rule of law in Hong Kong. And that allowing serving judges of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom to continue to play this ornamental role was serving the function that China wanted to distract attention from the fact that this was a fundamental transition from a rule of law state into a totalitarian state. Um, just with respect to Canada and Chief Justice McLaughlin in particular, what was really disturbing was the way that they treated her decision to remain on the court. So I would point in particular, there was an article in China Daily, which is the official mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party, where Carrie Lam discussed the decision of Lord Reed and the British justices as political, that it was nothing other than a political decision to attempt to tar the regime of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region and by extension China. And then in that same article, they pointed to the fact that people had chosen to remain in that role as evidence that this was just a political decision by the political elite of the United Kingdom. So it was just amazing because it shows how this ornamental role is really dangerous mm -hmm. because it's not just kind of giving prestige to the court system. It's, it's sort of inserting yourself into a dispute between, let's say, China and Western nations that are pointing to the destruction of Hong Kong's rule of law. And it is so unseemly that the uh, former um, president of the Hong Kong Bar Association, um, Paul Harris, shortly after he finished his term, he had to leave Hong Kong in a hurry because apparently the Hong Kong police has asked to interview him. And he's actually considered one of the less um, progressive outspoken presidents. A lot of people complain that he didn't stick up enough for the people of Hong Kong, uh, which brings me to the other issue that I find UK's reaction always interesting because let's not forget, they've had a long time in Hong Kong and they could have established a stronger democratic system, which would have made it more work for Beijing to dismantle. And I still remember um, even before the negotiations started when uh, Thatcher was still in government. There was very active lobbying in Hong Kong begging UK to start building a democratic system and granting Hong Kong people suffrage. 
in order to build up, have the chance to build up a tradition of democracy, it's, it's like a child, you know, giving it a chance to grow up so that it is more able to fend for itself. And uh, ultimately, um, the Brits decided not to do it. From what I heard, the, uh, the reason was that uh, they felt it was more important to maintain good relationship with Beijing than to worry about what happens to the people of Hong Kong. And it's, it's very sad as a Chinese person. Unfortunately, this is all too familiar. We've had such a long history. And in Chinese, um, citizens are referred to as ants. We have never been respected. I look at the history of some of the Western countries like UK with a lot of envy that there was such a, uh, a struggle, a will to establish fundamental freedoms and individual rights so early on. We never had that tradition. The British uh, colonial government had a chance to start a beachhead because if Hong Kong had the chance to grow up like that, it would provide leadership. But it never happened. Now it's left to uh, Taiwan. I think it is truly the only uh, yeah. Chinese speaking places that can say that it has true democracy. It has its own problems, a lot of corruption, but I think that it really stands as a shining example. And I hope the world is going to show some courage to support Taiwan's independence. Mm -hmm. well, that's another another critical issue we're, we're confronting. Um, uh, so in terms of the judges, and, and then I think, I think it does make sense after that to broaden the discussion and talk about, you talked about the COVID measures in China and uh, the situation with Taiwan. Um, there's, there's a lot going on as well in terms of the questions being asked about uh, the relationship between China and Russia in the context of, uh, of the current invasion of Ukraine. Um, but just uh, kind of to, to tighten the point here on the judges. So uh, in 2020, there was an Australian judge that resigned. Uh, we've just had the two British judges. Um, my understanding is that there remain some foreign judges drawn from both UK and Australia. Um, it, it, there's been no resignations from Canada, and there only ever was, uh, in, 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 you know, in, in recent years, uh, Justice McLaughlin. Um, is, is, is that correct? And is there expectation that there might be further resignations? I'll just uh, hop in first, I guess, on this one. Uh, just with respect to the resignations. So I think so. Um, I think that people are realizing very slowly that they can't play the role that they were hoping to play. Because I do think there were some people who at least began their tenure on the Court of Final Appeal with this idea that they were supporting the judiciary of Hong Kong. Yeah. But I think that there was a, a really critical shift around the Jimmy Lai um, bail appeal. So when Jimmy Lai was denied bail, and this is in February of 2021, um, the, the reasons for the judgment were written by the chief judge of the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal. And what he said is, we are not allowed to judge the constitutionality of anything promulgated by Beijing. The question of whether or not that is compatible with the Hong Kong uh, basic law, it's, its constitution, or even documents such as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights are beyond the powers of the judiciary. 
that effectively the role of the judges in performing this function of constitutional review is circumscribed by what whatever Beijing does, right? Again, this is just absolutely incompatible with an independent judiciary. You say, well, okay, you're allowed to review this legislation for constitutionality, but not that legislation for constitutionality. And well, you're forced to apply it, right? I mean, you have to apply yeah. it. You, you're a, a judicial machine. And right. that was very much the way that judgment read. Yeah. And for, for Chief Justice McLaughlin um, to point to the, the good faith of um, uh, the chief judge of the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal is now thoroughly inadequate because he understands his role in being a judicial functionary under the national security law. He's quite clear on this, it's in his reasons mm -hmm. in, the, in the Jimmy Lai bail appeal. So I think everyone is just at this stage thinking, am I content to just cash my check and serve this role or should I be looking for the exits? Yeah, um, it, she kinda, it seems to me that this might be a, a broader question that a lot of people in Hong Kong are, are facing. It's what in one of my university classes on ethics, we called the, the effectiveness trap where people uh, are in a role and they want to try to be effective for doing some good in that role, but their their actual ability to be effective is diminishing. And so they wonder, to what extent should I stay and try to have an impact, but at the same time, maybe be used in the context of that role? And at what point do I step out of that role? Um, is this something that people in Hong Kong society are dealing with in, in general, if they're a if they're in in senior positions in business and politics, do they do they stay to try to make a difference or do they resign their positions? No, I think that it is deeper than that. I look back to our long history. If there's one thing Chinese people have learned is to endure and survive. Mm -hmm. We've had centuries of poverty. We've had nothing but oppressive government and rulers. In fact, there are a lot of sayings basically um, reflecting on this theme, such as that government policy can be can bite you worse than a tiger. Um, or, you know, fables of people um, going to hide somewhere away from governments. That is in our blood, in our DNA. And so all we've learned as a member of a Chinese society is to endure and survive. And that's what you see from people, why Hong Kong under the British colonialism did so well was um, the British provided very good leadership and we were such good followers. We were hardworking and uh, so Hong Kong thrived. But right now the Beijing leadership um, is so oppressive and brutal and compared to the British anyway, leaves Hong Kong people a lot less room to go on with their lives. But a lot, well, I know a lot of Hong Kong people have left, but I also know, and I have relatives who are still in Hong Kong. I don't think they can tell me why they're there, except that culturally, you think that's all you should do because we were brought up to know that life is hard. I mean, I, I laugh when I see people in Canada taking down statues because of the person's relationship to slavery. By that standard, the entire Great Wall in China should have come down. 
And a lot of people don't even know that not only the Great Wall was built by slaves, but Fable has a stretch of it kept um, collapsing after being built up. And the emperor was told that what you need to keep it standing is to bury people alive, a thousand people. And that's what he did. If you ever have seen the movie Mummy, the one about the emperor, and all these corpses, you know, skeletons coming out of the Great Wall, that's what it was referring to. Not just that so many people died building it, but people were buried alive. And that's the culture that we came from. And that's the people right now that are enduring the, mm. the brutal um, totalitarian regime of China. How do you think people, even as cosmopolitan advance and affluent a place like Shanghai, put up with the COVID lockdown? You guys must have all seen the brutality of it. It's because we're used to it. And until Chinese people, each individual one, decide to say that we're not going to take it anymore, I know that sounds melodramatic, but that's what it is. We need to change our DNA and uh, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, even if Xi Jinping is deposed, he will be replaced by another dictator. Same story. It's like Groundhog Day. Hmm. Um, that's that's a, a fascinating perspective um, and to understand the history of of just some of the the brutal events in 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 the past. Um, and, and the continuing brutality of the CCP. I wonder though, at the same time, if you look at, I mean, there are, there are, um, you mentioned Taiwan, right? I mean, there, there, and there's, there's, uh, there is a history in mainland China, the, the Tiananmen Square protests, heroic, uh, heroic pursuit of democracy, the work of Hong Kong protesters themselves. Um, there, there, it does seem to me to be this, uh, this pursuit of freedom as well that's uh, that's there that's part of China's history and uh, and uh, um, you know I, I certainly I, I draw a great deal of inspiration watching the, the the people in Hong Kong they're taking a stand that are that are um, that are trying to pursue some kind of a better a better politics um, and I think you know they they show a lot more courage in that than uh, that maybe we see in certain other countries where people are inclined to take their freedom for granted. Um, well, that's an excellent point. I would just say that the legal profession of Hong Kong has put Canada's legal profession to shame because they understand the stakes of what's going on and they've been willing to fight for it against incredible pressures. I mean, just seeing um, lawyers being arrested, barristers being arrested for doing their jobs. Uh, T. couldn't mention Paul Harris. You look at the way that he was described in the pro-Beijing press in Hong Kong, just with horrible epithets. People understand the risk that they're taking and they, they understand the stakes and they fought for their freedom. They fought for the rule of law. They fought for an independent legal profession. And if we only had a 10th of that energy, but in, I, I often think too, that the reason why they don't get the attention they deserve is because somehow there's a narrative, a really dangerous corrosive narrative that sort of the, the fundamental ideas of the rule of law are just their Western ideas, their imperialistic ideas, their ideas that we use as an excuse to dominate, 
Um, and this is a, a point of view I see uh, with people promoting critical race theory, for instance, within um, uh, law faculties. And the narrative just crumbles when you take a look at the Hong Kong legal profession, because these are people who see this as an opportunity to create a free system. That's the best possible toolbox for getting to this kind of democratic state that they never really got before. Uh, to the discredit, I would say, of the, the final decades of, of British administration in Hong Kong, that they're going to use every tool that they have, and these are the best in the toolbox. And there's nothing Western about them. They're just what's absolutely necessary as technology to build a free society. And I think that um, what Ryan said is totally correct. And it's also true that the East always resents lecturing from the West. So I go back to my original point. I really would advocate we Canadians to talk down at other people less, but do more ourselves. And, and that's why I pursue Justice McLaughlin's um, uh, position at the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal. We're in no position to lecture Hong Kong about the rule of law when one of our most respected jurists continues to sit in that court. And it is incumbent upon us before doing things like writing to Xi Jinping and telling him what rule of law looks like, that we try to um, put what influence we could have on one of our own to do the right thing. And also, um, I, my heart always aches when I think about the people who did stand up for fundamental freedoms in China and in Hong Kong, because invariably they are crushed and the reason is there are simply not enough of us. They are like the people who stormed the Normandy beach, except there was no one behind them. So they always all get slaughtered, but one could hope that they will inspire people. I mean, the Hong Kong demonstrations were so impressive, but as soon as the government made it illegal, everyone just went home. There wasn't the spirit to say, maybe we go on strike. Even Carrie Lam, she can't survive if the chef doesn't cook for her and, and, and the servants don't clean the governor's mansion. But we have spent thousands of years barely scraping by, surviving. We have known no other government but dictators and brutal, brutal dictators that it's going to take a while. Um, so maybe the focus that we as people who want to advocate for the less not means worse Western values of fundamental freedoms and individual rights, that we need to start maybe more from education and also do it by example, that we lead by example, that we ourselves look at what can we do better. And from there, try to lend some support to the brave souls that continue to put themselves forward to keep the flame going. But at this point, I must admit, I don't know. I, I, I really admire them, but at the same time, I'm terrified. Every time I see someone stand up because I've seen that movie before. I have a friend who was upset at the Foreign Correspondence Club in Hong Kong for canceling this year's uh, Human Rights Award. He's a member, but I said to him, you can't blame the people for canceling. If they had held it, they would all have been arrested for violating the uh, national security law. 
are all the members who bitch about it ready to stand with them, go to the police station and ask to be handcuffed as well? That's what it's going to take for substantial changes to happen. There have been a lot of these sort of mass uh, mass acts of resistance by student protesters, I know, and um, but I think your point is just is just have have they gotten to the critical mass that would be required, I suppose, to uh, to, to shift the system. And I, it's interesting hearing both of your perspectives because they're they're complementary in some respects, but they're but they're different as well. Um, you know, hearing on the one hand that. There's been a lot of heroism shown uh, by Hong Kong people in, in the fight that's gone on. But on the other hand, also saying there's a long history of oppression and uh, it hasn't, you know, there there's still more work to do in terms of, of engaging more people in, in this issue and then understanding what the role of, what our role is. Um, Shikun, could you maybe just share a bit more? Like, what are the things that we can do specifically? You're saying not, not lecturing, but... Uh, but set, setting an example and then um yeah trying to understand just where these values of freedom coming from because you've identified them as western values um i think at the same time there are notions of of uh, um, freedom and virtue and responsibility that do have their roots in the chinese tradition although they haven't often been expressed in in um china's politics um i I really do believe that the um, idea of individualism belongs to the West. Um, the Chinese embrace Confucius ideas where the family is central. If you know this, the Chinese diaspora, we take care of each other within the family very well, but we never do get to grow outside of it. And, and that's a cultural thing. What we could do is to um, ourselves, value the rule of law, ourselves really value individual freedom in the way we live. If you look at our parliament, I, you don't need me to tell you that the <clears throat> democratic values been eroding. There's been not nearly enough fuss, not just among the, the uh, members of parliament, but also the electorate. People just don't seem to think that it's very important to maintain our democratic institutions, we need to pay more attention. And I think that is the best that we can do. And for the, um, in terms of our Chinese policy, be unabashed in our support for the rule of law, even if it costs us, because there's a price to be paid. Most of the time, the price is being paid by Chinese people. And we as such an affluent country we can afford to pay a bit. So I think that is what we can do. And, and in the sort of small example of Justice McLaughlin, I think it's quite a perfect little example. She may have her reasons for wanting to stay on that court, but I'm asking her to make that sacrifice and stand up for the values, the Western values of individualism, fundamental freedoms. I, my history is very poor, but I think it started in Greece to unabashedly say these are good values because it allows people the best chance of pursuing happiness in life. And we stand for it and we're prepared to pay for it by actions. No more talk. Mm -hmm. 
Brian, what do you get? Would love to well, hear your reflections on this as well. I completely agree. And I would say this, just to, to embellish it a bit. We think in the West frequently that the kind of state that we call a rule of law state that has all these structural features, including an independent judiciary, is just the normal state of affairs, uh, rather than an extremely tenuous achievement that took mm. us a really long time to put into place. I mean, just in terms of what we think would be adequate, right, from the point of view of Justice McLaughlin when she was sitting on the Supreme Court of Canada, how long had we had, had we had this? Two centuries? It's just an absolute blip in the scale of a civilization, uh, like if you take, take China's civilization as an example. So taking it for granted and then saying, well, everybody else will just automatically come to this eventually is, is, is pure folly, rather than thinking, oh. well, we have to all pay this price continuously to keep this in place. And I would just say with respect to the West and China, it's remarkable you know, when you hear someone say something like, well, I admire China's basic dictatorship because of its ability to get things done, right? That somebody expresses this, that they look to China and they say from a Western perspective, well, isn't that really great what, what they've had? But it, in a certain way, it isn't surprising. Just to, to, to piggyback off Chi Kun's um, point about the Greeks, they often thought that, well, if you're not really careful, if you don't build a constitutional system that's very durable, inevitably a democratic political order degenerates. And mm. what it degenerates into is an oligarchy where, you know, the most powerful people, people who would look to as, you know, billionaires or oligarchs or whomever, um, end up running the show. And of course they want a workforce that looks like China's. Of course they want a social system where people are, are not free to state uh, their views or to participate in democratic process just like China's. So I think that what we all have in common is this uh, aspiration for freedom and uh, where we are just with respect to this tenuous, fragile enterprise that we call the rule of law. It varies from, from uh, place to place, but uh, we all have to play our own part in keeping it alive so that other people can see what's possible. And I think that seeing the resistance that's possible is something that we can credit Hong Kong for. And the achievements of that state, well, I think we have to do a lot to keep that alive in Canada today. Mm. Can I have a very yeah. good example of what something that we could all do and should do? First of all, go and vote in all the elections. And the second thing is, and I've been advocating it at the Law Society, that uh, lawyers, as people who are good with procedure, everybody should sign up to go and work at the polling stations because um, election day is democracy at the forefront, engaging the entire population. We should all care about how well it's run. And those of us who have expertise should go and work as polling clerks, deputy returning officer. I've done it a million times, but I still invariably find moments of gratification, seeing an old man come to vote, carrying his portable oxygen tank. Mm -hmm. And yet he still insisted on uh, doing it himself. And he put that ballot into the box. I have to say it, I was so touched. I was close to tears. Um, mm -hmm. People with mobility issues, one spouse helping the other. And the long lineup, even before we opened the poll. So I, I urge all of us in the legal profession or even in other professions, but especially lawyers, 
because I think we are particularly well-trained to do that job and to make sure that it functions properly and safeguard people's right to vote, um, to go and do that on, on election day. I think people will find it very gratifying. I do. Mm. In terms of the comparison issue between China and, and the West, I mean, is, is it fair to infer from the comments both of you have made that there is something universal in that aspiration to freedom, but there is a different cultural experience with freedom and with politics where uh, our tendency in the West is maybe to take freedom for granted and not recognize how fragile it is. Whereas in, um, in, uh, in, a, in places like China, where there's a long history of, of authoritarian government, uh, there, is, um, there is maybe more of, of an acceptance of that um, in, in some quarters. And then also, um, you know, this, this speaks to the, the, the significant problem with the failure of the British to put in place a democratic, a democratic system prior to the handover, uh, the importance of, of building up that institutional culture. Hong Kong, it seems to me, has had the institutional culture of freedom, but not of democracy, right? That in, during its, its colonial history and in the early years after handover, there were, there were elements of, a lot of elements of, of free, individual freedom, but not of, um, but there was no, no popular control over government. And so now what we're seeing is um, a very strong reaction to the erosion of those of those basic freedoms because there is that pre-existing culture and expectation. What do you think about that? That uh, well, I think that uh, you see the the result of that growth in um, in in culture of freedom, but not democracy because Hong Kong people's resistance to um, tyranny is mostly a passive resistance. I would call it. They would go out, march on the street so long as it's legal. As soon as it's illegal, they go home. Um, when Apple Daily got shut down um, during the struggle, it was always sold out. People went to buy that magazine to show their support, but still it was allowed to shutter. Mm. So I, I, I think that you see the result of that. And maybe that should give us hope that it is possible to go and, and nurture that, um, that energy for freedom, that um, gut reaction to people who uh, step on your fundamental freedoms and to fight for your pursuit of happiness. But it will take time and it will take all of us. I Brian, what's your, that go ahead, yeah. You learn a lot of lessons through struggle. And I think it's, it's, it takes a, this is a point that I tried to make in my last book, that it really is a, a function of centuries of constitutional crisis and struggle against tyranny that we achieved what we call the rule of law in the West. You know, you have to go through so many lessons in which you lose and you lose and you lose, and then you understand how to do this effectively. And I think we mentioned Taiwan very briefly. Uh, they didn't get this given to them. They had a, the Kuomintang and um, the decades in which um, that was the dominant political party. There was quite a lot of political repression. But again, there was also a struggle for democracy. And I think that when you finally achieve it, you, you realize at least there's hopefully this period in which you, you've learned these lessons, 
but you still value the experience of having gone through that struggle. That may be the sweet spot. And I would say the other um, error that we tend to fall into is to thinking that somehow a democratic political order that is uh, very tolerant and values uh, individual rights is a function of economic prosperity. That was a tremendous gamble when applied to China. The notion that admitting China to the World Trade Organization was going to automatically lead to political liberalization. Well, unfortunately, that's one of these learning moments for us, that now we understand that really we should be a lot more critical about that idea that mm -hmm. we should be supporting struggle and not just supporting economic development. Well, I think that because we have always enjoyed the chicken in the pot and the car in the garage together with our rule of law. We thought if we give the chicken and the car to the Chinese, then the rule of law would just follow. It's not the case. As you see today, the sort of level of brutality and inhumane behavior under the banner of COVID zero that has happened, how did they manage to mobilize people, ordinary people to overnight become such monsters? It's because it's in their culture to be that way. All that the uh, Chinese government had done is simply to unleash it. And so I think for the West, our prosperity has, has actually just shielded us from that struggle. Our democratic system and rule of law was given to us, but if we want to keep it, we have to work for it, all of us and safeguarded and respected like that old man who carried his portable oxygen tank to come and vote. Mm -hmm. That's um, that's a great message. Um, let me um, let me sort of move us towards the end with with two um, with two more kind of themes or questions to look at. Uh, one is uh, COVID zero, and I'd like to hear a bit more. Um, Chaikun about about that, and then also just reflections on Canadian democracy because we've kind of touched on that in a few places. I think what are what are we what are we facing here in terms of the state of our democracy and uh, rule of law, and how um, how can we learn and be inspired by the the advocacy of people in Hong Kong? So on the first well, point, uh, 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 Chaikun, why don't you share a bit about about for those who haven't been following it as closely, what's happening with with the COVID measures specifically? Well, um, the Chinese government insists that they are continuing what they call COVID zero policy, meaning that they are going to eradicate it and regardless of cost. So they basically, they did it by quarantine. They lock people up, lock people in, and sometimes they put them into concentration style places. The places themselves are not for treatment. It's not clean, it's just containment. Is containment at all costs. So people have starved to death. Um, and you can hear people banging their pots, even in daylight, people sticking their heads out of windows saying that they are hungry. You see people spraying insecticides um, onto people's refrigerators to clean up. And even someone with, I don't know what you call it, but that gun, um, spews a fire, it's a fire hose. And he was cleaning the sidewalk and he burned some of the cars that was parked near it. So um, apparently there is right now a power struggle in Beijing, which has led to this aggressive policy 
that it was a showdown between the current uh, government, Xi Jinping's government, and the other faction, Jiang Ziming's um, faction, who are based in Shanghai. That is sort of the, the gossip of what's behind it. But regardless, I just am so horrified to see how easy it was for them to find all these people who would go and solder up people's doors so that they cannot leave their home. And they put a slit on the door where they put through some food. And if they forget to send you food, you starve to death. Mm. People who are who will show up in the hospital, all they need is a shot with some chronic illness to, to survive, but can't get the shot because they need to be tested for COVID and they die. People mm. who cannot get to their dialysis and they die. Um, it's an example of how the Chinese culture simply does not value human lives. Um, people are ants, don't forget we're ants, we're cockroaches. And that's how our rulers have always treated us. Ryan, do you want to pick up on uh, on that at all or, or answer yeah, the second I question I'll, maybe? Yeah. I'll just turn and maybe try to segue into that second question. So now in Canadian political discourse, you often hear the theme that people exercising their freedom, exercising their liberty are acting in a selfish manner that they should be instead prioritizing some sort of vision of, co of collective good, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's, it's really troubling because again, just really hard won insights over the course of the political struggle that gave us the rule of law. One, it would be that the only way that we can determine what's good policy or how society should be run is from people vigorously advocating for their own interest and for that coming into conflict with other people's vision of what the public good is right that the just like the scientific method the only way that you get to reliable results is by continuously contesting what the right answer is the moment that you give someone the power and the authority to define in advance what the correct answer is and say well everybody should fall into line with this is when you have fundamentally catastrophic policies of the kind that we've seen in china uh dating back all the way to uh the great leap forward let's say um so to hear people saying well people are being selfish in thinking about their liberty well no they care about a political system and the viability of a political system that produces the best results because people are empowered to do what they think is right and more importantly to always be able to say what they mm -hmm. think is right and that encourage is really under threat the notion of disinformation misinformation uh, the need to regulate uh, speech through you know such bodies as the CRTC just really seems inimical to that. But I think we've lost sight of some of these fundamentals. But when we hear people talking about you know um, collective good in a way that frequently resembles China, I think that's a point where we can uh, say let's just pause for a second and let's think about the consequences of that kind of a vision of public good and the way to determine what's good public policy. Mm -hmm. Those are those are really interesting points. I, I think uh, important things to reflect on what we're seeing in Hong Kong, the threats to the rule of law, um, the things that led us to to that point, and what our role is, and the things we can learn here in Canada. Um, and look, I personally, I very much believe in the idea that uh, the aspiration to freedom is universal. Um, I think it's an important uh, antidote to that, to acknowledge how people's uh, experience of politics shapes their sense of what 
may be possible as well. And um, and it has been inspiring to see this, the, the freedom struggle in Hong Kong, uh, to see the democracy that's been built in Taiwan. Um, and I think, um, you know, we, we, we recently marked the, uh, the anniversary of, of the, the terrible massacre and protests in Tiananmen Square, such courage shown by the protesters there as well. Um, but these are, these are continuing challenges because of, of as much as this, there's this universal aspiration to freedom, there's also this, um, this, this fairly universal human susceptibility to arguments of, um, as you talked about, Ryan, of, of, well, well, what about the greater good? What about the greater good? With, without appreciating that, you know, how do, we, how do we ever get to the greater good? How do we find what the greatest, greater good? It is, it is through, through debate, right? I mean, this was John Stuart Mill's core arguments in, in On Liberty. It wasn't to say that liberty was, a, was, a, was a, a verifiable good in and of itself, but that liberty was useful in that it allowed for competition and choice and therefore the, the best ways of living to rise to the top. Um, I think that actually, yeah. for me, the most fundamental concept that we need to hang on to is individualism. And that's what the Chinese culture has lost from centuries of beating it out of us, that we were so poor, we weren't allowed individualism. And I think in the West, in Canada, we're so lucky we have such affluence and the way this country started that we should value, cherish, promote, and, and hang on to it as the jewel of the crown is individualism, that in individual dignity as humans. And if we have that, we're going to be all right. If we forget that and stop protecting it, nurturing it, then we can, we can look around the world and see what could happen. We have it so good in this country, by and large, we're untested. Our biggest test and biggest challenge is to fight against complacency. Hmm. Those, are, those are powerful words, Ryan. Do you want to have a last word as well? And then we'll, uh, then we'll wrap up. I think my last word would be that I'm absolutely certain that John Stuart Mill would agree. Okay, excellent. Well, we, we continue to wish well for Hong Kong. I think it's good for people to be informed of the issue of Justice McLaughlin and uh, foreign judges and the rule of law, some aspects of the system, but also we've had this uh, this broader, deeper conversation. I've I've really appreciated it and valued it, and I'm I'm sure our listeners will as well. So, thank you so much for uh, for for this conversation and uh, for our listeners. Uh, we'll be back in seven days with another episode. Please leave a review. Uh, please share this episode on your social media if you're just just encountering this one. We do have. Uh, weekly updates on my podcast, Resuming Debate. You can find it on all the major podcast uh, platforms. Uh, have a great day and uh, look forward to talking to you again in seven days.